And so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we just thank you for John. We thank you for Bridget and for the kids. And, and we thank you for leading us here to this point. And God, I pray um, for them. I pray for our church as we seek your will today. Uh, God, I pray that you would give us that assurance um, as we gather tonight as a church, as a congregation to vote. And Father, we do pray for Faith Baptist Church and the transition that they'll be going through uh, if this be your will, which we believe it is. And so we pray that in all these things, God, you would get the glory and that your kingdom would be lifted up and your churches would be strengthened. And it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 5. Let's go there. I thought about preaching on something different today, but I thought, no, we're just going to keep on moving right with what we've been doing. As we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount, we come to to verse 9 today. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. If you had to describe the state of the world today, the state of America, the state of what you see on TV, uh, you might describe uh, what you see with words like fear, anger, outrage, frustration, division, bickering, wars, crime, murders, sickness... Uh, A word that you probably would not use in describing the state of affairs today would simply be the word peaceful. I think everybody in here could probably agree with that, that we are not in a day and age where we feel like we are at peace, where we feel like there is a whole lot of peace to go around. And so that that tells me that when we come to Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, just how applicable this verse is, just how much of a challenge this verse is, For us who are God's children, who are called to do what this verse calls us to do. In verse 9, Jesus said this in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, In in the Hebrew, that word peace is the word shalom. And in the Greek here in the New Testament, it's the word that connects to that, the word shalom. Shalom. And and shalom is more than just the absence of conflict. It's more than just the absence of fighting. It's a word that means wholeness, completeness, restoration, to be made right. And in truth, shalom is exactly what Jesus Christ gave us. He gave us peace through the blood of his cross. It says so in Colossians chapter 1 verse 19. It's going to be on the screen. It says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so our peace with God came through the blood of Jesus Christ. His crucifixion, death, and resurrection brought us peace. It bought our peace. Peace. Christ reconciled us to God, giving us a restored relationship with our Heavenly Father. That relationship that had been broken in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve and God through their sin was then restored. We have the opportunity for a restored relationship because of what Christ did. He made us whole. He made us complete. He removed that wall, that barrier, giving us a fresh start. Removed that barrier that separated us and God, tearing down the consequence of our sin. We have peace because Christ made it so. Jesus Christ is the author of our peace. 
And if we think about it even further, we'll notice this, that he willingly made peace for us through the blood of his cross. Of his own initiative. Jesus was not coerced into doing it. He was not forced into coming and dying on a cross. Instead, he chose to come and give his life on a cross so that we might have peace. Sometimes we think about John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And if you don't know scripture and you don't understand it, you might think that that means that God the Father gave Jesus, but Jesus didn't really have a choice in the matter. But that would not be true. Because Christ willingly came to pay a price that he did not owe for sin that he did not commit. And in that act, he not only removed the conflict between us and God, giving us that restored relationship, but he also gave us the privilege to be called sons and daughters of God, children of God. And so we were made whole all because of Jesus' initiative, and also, I would add, because of his purpose. We weren't offered this peace and this forgiveness because of our value to God as if we could do something for him, but simply because of God's love for us, Jesus Christ's loving kindness, the kindness of the Prince of Peace. And because of that, we have been called to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Because we are the children of God, we are called to be those who make peace. And so this morning, I want to give us some practical advice for being a peacemaker. What do we need to do? How can we be people who make peace, who encourage peace? First thing I would tell us is this. Don't be a peace breaker. You can't be a peacemaker if you're always a peace breaker. If you're always unnecessarily causing conflict and breaking peace in this world, you are not a peacemaker. You know, the truth is we have enough people in this world who want to pick fights and who want to call people names and who want to point fingers and yell back and forth. We don't need Christians doing the same, do we? We don't need Christians being ones who are antagonistic and fighting. We need people who are peace. Makers actively working for peace. And I thought about, too, as I prayed through this, I thought of a couple different ways that we get ourselves in trouble when it comes to breaking the peace. And so here's a couple words of advice under that point. Number one is we have to learn to control your tongue. Isn't it true that our tongues get us in trouble every now and then? Amen. Amen. I know mine does. Sometimes my sinful self gets ahead of my mouth and my brain and my tongue gets myself in trouble. One author I read said it like this. He said, it only takes two years to learn how to talk, but it takes the rest of your life to learn to control what you say. And isn't that true? Isn't that true? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 said it like this. Peter said, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. James gave a similar idea over in James chapter 3. He gives that illustration where he says the, the tongue is a, is, a, is a piece of fire. It's dangerous. It, 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 it's a world of unrighteousness. So we must, alert, we must learn to control our tongues. I read a story in the news the other day. Several years ago in a little small town, they had an outbreak of small house fires. All over the town, little fires started popping up. 
And as they began to investigate these fires, what they discovered is the fires were actually being set by men on the fire department because they had gotten bored and they wanted some fires to put out. They missed the sound of the sirens, and so they decided to make their own work. And they decided to create their own fires. You know, our job as peacemakers would be easier if we don't start fires in the first place. Our job as peacemakers, you know, we can't make peace if our mouths keep making messes. And so I believe, according to Scripture, that peacemakers consider the weight of their words. Uh, that they know what to repeat and know, know what not to repeat. Even if what that is might be true, they know when to hold their mouths and their tongues silent and not to say certain things. They know how to say difficult things when they need to be said in a gentle way. You ever known somebody who liked to hide behind the excuse, well, I'm just blunt. I just like to tell it like it is. Or somebody who will say something rude or something harsh and then they'll finish it with, I'm just saying as if that gives them an excuse to be rude and blunt. I believe those are really just excuses for people who have not learned how to control their tongues. Because, you know, the truth is, is that peacemakers have no business with that kind of attitude. Because it's not just what we say that, that matters, but it's how we say it. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 talks about how that when we're defending our faith, when we're, when we're talking with people who are antagonistic to Christianity, that we must do so with gentleness and respect. Not being blunt and rude. Gentleness and respect. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul writes about how we ought to go to people with the spirit of gentleness. And so we have to learn to control our tongues. And I would also add this too, we have to learn how to control our keyboards. In today's day and age, we tend to hide behind keyboards and type on screens and we say things and we type things that we wouldn't dare say to people's faces. That's not Christianity. That's not living like Jesus. And so we must learn to control our tongue. Second thing is we have to learn to control our temper and to confess your anger. Yeah, I believe those two things go together. To control your tongue and to control your temper go hand in hand because a loose temper is going to equal a loose tongue, does it not? And so peacemakers don't let their tempers fly wild. James in chapter 1 verse 19 said it like this. He said, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And in Proverbs chapter 14, 29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Now, the truth is anger isn't always sinful. We know that from Scripture, right? There are times when it is justified that we get anger. We would call that righteous anger. And there are times when confrontation should take place. And so to be a peacemaker does not mean to be an appeaser. It does not mean that we have to go with the flow no matter what happens. Sometimes peace requires conflict. Sometimes it requires intervention. Sometimes it requires saying hard things. But the key is what do we do with our anger when we do become angry? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Paul says it like this. He says, be angry and do not sin. And so in other words, those two things can coexist, to be angry and to not sin. And then he goes on to say this, do not let the sun go down on your anger. I believe he's telling us that we shouldn't sit on it, that we shouldn't allow it to fester 
and to grow and give no opportunity to the devil. And so when we do become angry, we, we, need, to, we need to take time. When we do find it's time to confront somebody, I believe we need to turn to God and ask God, okay, God, in your wisdom, how do I handle this? God, what do I do? How do I confront this person in love? How do I come to this person and share with them your viewpoint, your wisdom, without turning them away? I, I know, God, this is going to be difficult, and I know that, that what I say might turn them away, but God, how can I do this with gentleness and respect? We need to ask ourselves, is my anger right now, is it righteous? Is it because of, of God has been offended? Is it because God's word has been violated, or is it unrighteous? And at the center of all that, I believe, is simply this, self-control. That you, 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 cannot, you cannot be a peacemaker without exhibiting a spirit of self-control. You see, when we lose our control, we're doing exactly what the devil wants us to do. Paul said there, give no opportunity to the devil, right? What's the devil want? Division. What did he do in the garden when he came in and he went to Adam and Eve and he began to tempt them? He was trying to divide them, to pull them away from God. That is what he is after, division. And so we must have self-control when we become angry so that we do not fall for the devil's schemes. I mentioned just a minute ago that in today's climate, it seems like there's a whole lot of anger, right? A whole lot of what we might call outrage toward one another. And I would say this, that there's a whole lot of difference between outrage and what we would call righteous anger. You see, righteous anger is, is aimed at the glory of God. We want God to be exalted. But outrage is anger because I'm mad, because I've been personally injured. I've been insulted. You see, outrage seeks to punish. It seeks to destroy. Righteous anger seeks to redeem and restore. It seeks to, seeks to bring people back to God. And if we're not careful how we handle our anger, if we're not careful in praying to God and saying, God, help me to do this with gentleness and respect, help me, help me to confront the situation with, in a spirit of gentleness, if we're not careful, then what can happen is what began as righteous anger can become unrighteous in the way that we deal with it, in the way that we handle it. And that anger will begin to grow and it'll fester and we'll have a bigger problem in the end than we did in the beginning. You know, last week I was telling you about how me and my family like to go to Pickwick and play around at the lake. And, and sometimes when we go down there, we'll, um, we'll go with Chuck and Kathy Beaver and they have a ski boat and we'll go out. And they like to do this thing called wake surfing where you get on a surfboard and you ride behind a boat. It's hard to explain, but it's a lot of fun. And as we were, the last time that we went, as we were riding down the lake... Um, I was in the back, I was surfing, and I was back there trying to get, do my best Beach Boys imitation, you know. And uh, I started seeing all these fish jumping out of the water at me. And, uh, and I knew exactly what they were. They were Asian carp. If you've ever been to a lake and seen Asian carp, they're a major nuisance. Because as you run a boat, they will jump out of everywhere. And, and these fish I was seeing was like this big, but they can get to about, what, that big? Or it's a, if it's a fish story, it's probably more like that big, right? But they get huge. They get very large and they get very dangerous because they jump and they'll hit people. And, and they also will go, they'll come in and they just, they begin to just take over the lake. They'll eat all the food and run all the, the fish that you like, bass, crappie, things like that. That'll, that'll kill them all off because they lose all their food. And see, 
how we even got to that situation is basically this. Years and years ago, um, people brought these Asian carp to Arkansas. See, they're the source of our problem. No. <laughs> to Arkansas, just, just, just kidding, just kidding, um, in order to control algae and fish farms. And they didn't take into account floods. And when floods came, the fish got out and they've begun to spread. They've gotten all the way up to the Great Lakes and they're just taking over. To the point where our fish and wildlife management agencies spend millions of dollars every year trying to eliminate Asian carp. Now, what would have been easier, to eliminate the problem now or to have never started the problem in the first place? Isn't it true? If they had never brought them over in the first place, we wouldn't have to deal with that. And the same is true with our anger and our resentment. If we will deal with it now the problem will be much simpler than if we allow it to fester and to grow like an invasive species. Paul said, do not let the sun go down in your anger. Instead, actively do something about it and take care of it. Second point I think we need to see from this is how do we be a peacemaker is that we must learn to take the active role. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. The peacemakers, those who make peace, those who actively pursue peace. And so this is more than just avoiding breaking the peace. That's important. It's more than just that, but it's working to bring peace into our world. Hebrews chapter 12, 14 says this, strive for peace with everyone. Strive, work at it. Try for peace, work for peace. Do me a favor real quick. I need everybody to close your eyes, all right? I want you to think in your mind for just a moment about what, what, is a, what is something that's peaceful. Just get a picture in your mind of, of, of peace, tranquility. All right, open your eyes. How many of you pictured the beach? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you pictured the mountains? Okay. How many of you pictured your bed? Anybody? <laughs> How many of you pictured a place where there were no people. Isn't it funny how when we envision peace, we, elim we immediately eliminate other people? But that's not what God did. God's peace is not the absence of people. If it had been, then he would never, never have told Noah to build an ark. He would have simply wiped out mankind because of sin, and he would have said no more to mankind. But instead, he took it upon himself to make a way to bring us back to him, to, to reconcile us to God, even at a great cost, the cost of his son. And so God made peace. He didn't wait for peace to happen. He made peace. And we, according to Jesus right here, have the same calling to make peace. Don't just wait for it. Don't even just pray for it. We ought to pray for it, but to be people who pursue it, who seek to bring people together. I think that's why Paul in Romans chapter 12 said it like this. He was talking about how you ought to do more than just to love your enemies. You ought to do loving things to your enemies so that they might not be enemies any longer. Verse 18, he said, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Actively work to bring about peace. Don't just sit back and wait for it to happen, but be peacemakers. Third thing I think we need to understand when it comes to being a peacemaker is that we must be people of forgiveness. Must be a person of forgiveness. Peacemakers are people of forgiveness. Forgiveness in both directions. They have the desire to forgive others and also the desire to seek forgiveness when they've done wrong. Peacemakers aren't too proud to own up to the mistakes they've made. And they're also not too selfish to forgive others when they make mistakes. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Paul said this. He said, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You know, a, a few weeks ago as we've been working through the Beatitudes, I think about what we talked about several weeks ago when we said blessed are the meek, right? Strength under control. We talked about to be blessed are the merciful, those who offer forgiveness. You cannot make peace without forgiveness. To be a peacemaker doesn't mean just to overlook the mistakes and the problems to act like nothing happened. No, it means to reconcile. It means to work things out. It means to trust God to work those things out as you come together and seek to offer forgiveness and to give forgiveness that God will help things to settle out. And then lastly, I'll say this is if we want to be a peacemaker, we have to learn to keep Christ's kingdom first. In the end, that's what it's about. It's not about my pride. It's not about my reputation. It's not about my wants, my desires. It's about God's kingdom. And so we need to remember that what we do, what we say, how we forgive or how we don't forgive, how we overlook an offense or not, how we control our tongue or we don't control our tongue, every little thing we do impacts God's kingdom, either for the good or for the bad. Every little thing we do can either be a doorway by which people come to hear the gospel or a wall that keeps people from hearing the gospel. What matters most is not what I want, but what God's want and God's kingdom wants. And so this, this, this drives everything. This guides every decision, every step. It's not about me, it's about Jesus. And because of Jesus, I lay myself at his feet. If Christ had wanted revenge, he could have gotten it on the cross, couldn't he? He could have called down angels. He could have made them all blind. He could have wiped them all out in that moment. But instead, he willingly paid the price for the sake of God's kingdom so that we might have a relationship through him, so that we might have forgiveness through his blood. And so we have to be willing to pay the price, knowing that it's God's kingdom that matters, not our own. And in doing so, we lay our lives at Christ's feet and say, God, whatever you call me to do, no matter what the cost, I'll do it. I heard a story the other day that I thought would be 
appropriate to, to finish today with. Um, back in the, in the 5th century, there was a monk by the name of Telemachus who lived in Rome. And he, he wanted to live his life in pursuit of God. And so he thought that the way to do that was to go and to live alone somewhere. And so he moved away from all people and lived in complete isolation so that he could pray, so he could fast and meditate. But one day as he prayed, God convicted him and he realized that he was actually doing the very opposite of what God wanted him to do. That if he wanted to serve God, he must learn to serve people. And so he set out to return back to, to the city. And the city that he chose to go back to was Rome. Now Rome at that point was a, a, a Christian empire. It, it, that Christianity was the official religion. But at that time that he happened to get back to Rome, Rome had just won a major military battle and defeated the Goths. Um, and so because of that, because they were Christian and because there was this victory, people poured into churches in order to celebrate their victory. They, they wanted to give praise to God. But there was one practice, one pagan practice that still remained in Rome in those days, and that was the gladiator games. And while Christians were no longer being thrown to the lions because it was Christian empire, um, instead what the Romans would do was they would take these people that they had conquered and they would place them in the arenas and force them to fight to the death, all for the entertainment of a supposedly Christian audience. And so the day that, that Telemachus ended up coming back into Rome had just happened to be the day of one of these gladiator games. And as he came into town, he began to hear this roar this, these, cra these cheers and these chants, the chants of about 80,000 people who were gathered in this arena to watch these, these men fight to the death. And so he followed the noise and he found his way to that arena. And there he stood in, in amazement and in just absolute disbelief as these supposedly Christian people were forcing their, their captives to fight to the death all while they cheered over their blood. He couldn't believe what was happening. And so he jumped into the arena and he got between these two gladiators and he began to, to ask them and to plead with them to stop fighting. Well, the crowd went insane and they began to boo and to, to holler. And eventually they stoned Telemachus and killed him right there in that instant. But in all the chaos, they chose to cancel the gladiator games for that day. But then something strange happened. Three days later, the emperor of Rome was convicted and was moved. And he chose to make Telemachus a saint, declared him a martyr, and ended up closing the games forever. And it was said that Telemachus' death was more useful to mankind than his entire life because he gave of himself to save the life of others. And to bring about peace. We are called to be peacemakers. To be people who step between warring parties. People who bring people together. All motivated for one reason. And that is the kingdom of God. So that in, in what we do, people might come and have peace with God. Would you pray with me? Father God, as we come to this time of invitation this morning, I pray that we would think long and hard about what it means to be a peacemaker. 
God, we live in a divided world. And it can be easy as Christians to sit on the sidelines and to step back and just to watch and to grow angry and frustrated over the things that we see on the news. But it also can be easy to do nothing in response. It can be easy to instead join right in and begin to call names and begin to to do the very opposite of what you want us to do. Jesus, you've called us to do exactly what you did, and that is to go in love to those who are hurting, those who are broken, and to share the love of God with them. To seek to make peace by showing them and introducing them to the Prince of Peace. Father, your son said we are children of God, the sons of God. And because of that, we are to be peacemakers. So, Father, I pray that we as believers would take that that calling seriously. To not be peace breakers. To not do what the world does, but to imitate the Savior. Father, I pray that if there be someone here today who does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they do not have peace with you, I pray that today would be that day they would receive that peace the day that they would come to know Jesus Christ, place their faith and trust in Him, receive the forgiveness that only He can give for their sin, and make Him the Lord and Savior of their life. I pray if there be someone that needs to make that decision, that today they would come down this aisle and want to know more, want to be able to pray together and, and hear more about what it means to follow Jesus. And Father, if we as believers have decisions that need to be made, whether it be church membership, some type of rededication, the confession of sin. God, I pray that, that, we, would, that we would come and, and do business with you. God, if there be those that need to come to the altar and pray this morning, or whether those decisions are just simply things that need to happen in their hearts, right in their seat, God, I pray that you would burden us through the power of your Holy Spirit to do what you're calling us to do. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we do pray these things. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?